Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin... You became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father and our 
Gracious King, we bow before you and we are glad to come again to a throne of grace. Glad, Father, to have an audience with the Almighty. Father, we praise you for turning your love toward us and setting your affection on us, not just uh, with good intention, but God planning our redemption and accomplishing that redemption, pursuing us, bringing us to yourself, working in us according to your good pleasure. Father, we're grateful for the grace that has come to us. We're grateful, Father, that, that I am His and He is mine. We're grateful, Father, that we who once were not a people have been made to be a people. And though we were far off, we've been brought near. God, we, we praise You for taking us from the camp of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of Your dear Son, the kingdom of light. We praise you, Father, that you've taken people who were rebels, traitors, and you have caused us to be happy subjects of the King. And God, you have caused our hearts to to love you imperfectly. But God, we do love you and we want to love you more. God, we pray that you would again Stir our hearts and and our affections, Lord, and and cause us to to love Christ with the love that He deserves, to give Him the glory that's due His name. God, we pray that our love to Him would, would eclipse other loves and that there would not be room for any other challengers, God, that would try to sneak in. God, we thank you for this, this only one. And we thank you, Father, for helping us to see that he is the pearl of great price, the great treasure hidden in the field. And seeing the treasure that's there, God, you make us willing to sell everything to have him. And glad to do it. God, we pray that he would again beat in our hearts that treasure. That though we do not see him, we would love him. That he would be precious to us. God, we thank you for this great salvation that you have purchased at the cost of your son's blood. We thank you for this great redemption. We thank you that though... He goes to the cross and dies and pays the debt that is ours. He has risen with power. And that He ever lives now to make intercession for us. We we are grateful, Father, to know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We come to you this morning in His name, God, and we are needy. The God, we look to you, the God of all comforts, the God of infinite supply. The God whose storehouses never are diminished. And we ask you, Father, to 
speak to us and to give us this morning all we need to walk with you today, to worship you, to to live lives that adorn the gospel. Father, we ask that your word would come to us this morning in power. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us. God, direct us, lead us, convict us, challenge us. God, we pray for those who are still outside of Christ and we pray that you would make them long to know Him above all else. God, we pray that this day might be the day of salvation for many. We ask you, God, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, spring allergies have hit me, and my voice is not what it normally is. So, Elizabeth, let's just skip that last hymn. That's all right with you. I think, I think it will be. <laughs> she didn't want to play it anyway, I don't think. <laughs> I won't tell. We're in Romans 6 this morning. <clears throat> Romans 6. We'll be looking particularly at verse 4. But before we get there, I want to um, back up for just a moment. I was last standing before you two weeks ago on Easter and we looked then at the resurrection of Christ and spoke about how the Lord Jesus rose from the dead with power and majesty. Uh, We looked at Romans 1-4 that he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we talked about how this declaration that was made is a declaration of something that's new. And yet he was already the Son of God and he already had power. But it is a line of demarcation that's been drawn. And what has changed is that he is now the mediator and he's accomplished the work. It is finished. And the resurrection from the grave declares that. It emphasizes that. It is the receipt on the payment that has been made that says it's been paid in full. The Father has accepted the payment and you can be sure He's accepted the payment because the Son has risen from the grave. He rises as the firstborn from the dead. And He rises as our representative head. We have become united with Him in the likeness of His death and certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection We're all born with Adam as our representative. We all died in Adam when he sinned. But when a person is born from above, that person has a new representative, a new head, the Lord Jesus. Because Christ Jesus is our representative, our head, his death has powerful implications for those who are his. And his resurrection also has powerful implications for those who belong to him. The resurrection itself that he has secured for us by his resurrection is, in a sense, a twofold. um, It has implications in two different directions, if you will, or in two different arenas. We looked primarily two weeks ago at one of those, the resurrection to glory. As Christ came out of the grave 
resurrected from the dead, taking up his body, so the believer, the one who's united to Christ Jesus in his death, having Jesus as his representative in death, will also be united to Jesus in his resurrection. And this resurrection secures our resurrection. It guarantees that one day we will rise from the grave. And so, the resurrection to glory. His resurrection secures our resurrection. And it does that in a number of ways that we talked about last week. I'm going to just mention them. And then we'll move into uh, Romans 6. It guarantees our resurrection as a payment. Not the payment itself, but as the receipt of the payment we talked about. He, in his resurrection, does not add anything to the payment that was made in his suffering. But the resurrection is the proof that the payment has been received and applied in full. The resurrection bears witness to the fact that for all who are in Christ Jesus, the debt is no more. And since the debt has been paid, the way has been opened for us to be raised from the dead. It also secures our resurrection by means of his power. Christ's resurrection demonstrated the reality that he had conquered his and our enemies. If death had remained victorious, how could he get up out of the grave? But he does get out of the grave. Death could not hold him. Arising victorious, he now holds the keys of death and of Hades. And as death could not hold him... For all who belong to him, who are united to him, death will not be able to hold you either. His death also becomes a pattern for the believer. His resurrection, rather, becomes a pattern for the believer. The resurrection of Jesus provides the pattern for what resurrection life will look like for all of his children. As the firstborn from the dead, as the first fruits of the resurrection... His resurrection is is an example, in a sense. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 say that the Lord Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. He will transform us from our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. This is a wonderful transformation. We talked about how this would uh, occur in a way that we will be resurrected to the same body. We don't get a a completely different body. So, you know, there's a shuffling of bodies or, or this body is laid aside for a different body. But it's this body. That will be raised to the, the body that we now inhabit will come out of the grave if we've died in Christ. And we will inhabit that body. However, the body will be improved. In, our corruption will be laid aside and we'll take up incorruptibility. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 43 and 44... This body is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Those are a few of the things that we talked about two weeks ago. 
And there are a number of inferences that I kind of ran out of time to make. And I want to just mention two. If God is, has redeemed this body and will bring this body out of the grave, then we should have some concern for this body. But it needs to be a careful concern. And what I mean is, on one hand, we don't want to pamper ourselves so that we avoid working in the kingdom you know, to, to try to preserve our body. We don't want to um, fail to do the things God calls us to do because we're easy on ourselves as if God is not going, hasn't redeemed this body, it doesn't belong to him, or as if he is not going to rejuvenate it in the resurrection. On the other hand, we don't want to abuse our bodies because it does belong to him. He has bought it at a price. We can do that in, in trivial pursuits, just foolish living. We could also do that in good pursuits, but done unwisely. I don't want to judge Robert Murray McShane and how he lived by any means. In many ways, he's a wonderful example. But the Scottish pastor, McShane, died at 29, his health broken, and he wrote before his death, God gave me a message to deliver and a horse to ride. And the horse was his body. I have killed the horse. And now I cannot deliver the message. He was saying, I, you know, I, I've lived so hard. I've worked so hard. I've killed the horse early. Well, this resurrection has secured for us a twofold, or we might say, effects in two arenas. And the first one that I mentioned is the resurrection to glory. The resurrection from the grave. Our bodies coming out of the grave, the resurrection of the just. There will also be the resurrection of the damned, but the resurrection of the just to glory. But this morning, I want to talk about something a little different. It is still a resurrection. It is still an implication or something that follows from Christ being raised from the dead. But it is the resurrection to grace. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Therefore... We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now before I get into anything else, let me just mention very briefly the word baptism. I'm not going to spend hardly any time there. So if you have lots of questions, you can ask somebody else later or you can come ask me later. But personally, I believe he's saying we're immersed into Christ. He's speaking about our union with Christ. If that's not what he's talking about, if he's speaking of water baptism, then he says that as a, a symbol of something else that has really occurred, a change that's taken place. I don't think for a moment he's saying that baptism, going through the baptistry, unites you to Christ. So if you want to argue that, you can argue with someone else. Now, union with Christ, in his death, and in his resurrection, resulting here in verse 4 with newness of life. I want to give you four things. The first is the context here. As you read the first verses of Romans chapter 6, you'll notice that Paul has a lot to say about being raised from the dead and about being in the likeness of his resurrection. So we just read verse 4. Verse 5 says, If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. Um, And there are a few other verses as well. In Romans chapter 6, there are a couple of details I think that are worth noting as Paul works through these verses and as we work through them. The first, when Paul writes here about Jesus' resurrection, he is speaking about Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave. That's clearly what he's talking about. Jesus rose on the third day. That's what he's talking about. But second, when Paul speaks here about the believer being raised, he's not speaking about our bodily resurrection from the grave. He is not writing about our resurrection to glory, but our resurrection to grace. If you look at the context of chapter 6, I believe the argument that Paul is making makes it clear that he must be speaking about something other than our future bodily resurrection. He's not looking forward to that day and saying, then we'll no longer be slaves to sin. Then we'll be uh, we'll have a new master. We'll have a new life. It, there's some truth to that, but he's talking about now. Right now, don't yield yourselves as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't be slaves to sin because you've been freed from it. You've died to it already, and you've been raised now to walk in newness of life. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, so the last half of the chapter, we could say, Paul contrasts the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus with the condemnation brought about by Adam. He demonstrates that the grace of God is more than adequate to deal with our sin by stating in verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He argues that grace is what's needed and grace is what God has provided for us for salvation. The law doesn't bring us to salvation. It brings us to Christ. It brings us to the knowledge of sin. It's a schoolmaster. But it doesn't save. We need grace. And he argues it so strongly that there might be the possibility that some would say, chapter 6, verse 1, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? After all, wherever sin has increased, grace abounds all the more. And so maybe we sin more so that grace abounds even more. And the more we sin, the better the grace is. And it's a twisted kind of thinking, but you can imagine someone having that kind of idea. And so Paul answers in verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And the rest of chapter 6 is in a sense the why of verse 2. The the may it never be. Why? Chapter 6. You must not continue in sin because you've been raised to glory. You've died to sin. You've been raised to newness of life. Pardon me. The answer is not that you must not continue in sin because you've been raised to glory, but because you've been raised to grace. Now, it is true that when we are raised to glory, when we are bodily raised from the grave, and we physically enter glory, 
sin will no longer be a problem. In 1 John chapter 3, in verse 2, John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And seeing Him as He is and being changed on that day into His likeness has implications for now. And John goes on and says in verses 3 through 6, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. They don't continue in sin as a pattern. We, we want to put it away. We seek to purify ourselves as He is pure. Because when He comes, we will be made like Him. And so John speaks of these implications that come from the truth that we'll be changed to be like Him. We might say that Romans 6 tells us the means or the power by which we seek to purify ourselves now or, or, or to not continue in sin. When Paul says that you, believer, have been raised with Christ Jesus, he means now. These verses are not speaking about later, a bodily resurrection. They're speaking about a resurrection that demonstrates that you have now been justified. And so in Romans 6, he's not writing about the resurrection of the just. He's writing about your resurrection to grace. As he writes about this, a second thing. The first was context. The second is certainty. As he writes about this resurrection to grace, he writes of certainty. He writes about things that are certainly true. Again, verse 4 Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Though Paul speaks of Christ's physical death, he's not speaking about your physical death. We've been buried with him through baptism into death. Is he saying that when Christ died, you fell over dead? Well, no. In fact, Christ's death occurred thousands of years ago. You weren't even alive. But if you've been united with Him, if you've been born from above and united with Him, then you've been united to His death. And as your representative, His death is for you. He is your substitute. He has borne your sins. So not your physical death, but your union with Jesus Christ by faith in His death. And then as he goes on, as he speaks of Christ's physical resurrection, he doesn't speak of your physical resurrection. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. He writes of something that's true because of your union by faith with Jesus' resurrection. 
Because you've been united with him in his death, you are also united with him in his resurrection. Yes, that has future implications, but it also has immediate implications. Paul writes of your union with Christ Jesus as being so vital and so immediately true and so presently real that to the Ephesians, he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He speaks of the believer as now being seated with Christ in heavenly places, raised up with him as you've been made alive with him. He's speaking of union with Christ. And he speaks of this as a certainty. It is certain that if you've died with Christ, you have been raised with Christ. Yes, you will be bodily raised, but you've already, in a sense, been raised. Now, some might object that some of Paul's language in Romans 6 is future tense. And so how could he be speaking about now when he, he speaks future tense? So, for instance, in chapter 6 and verse 8, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. But Paul does not use the future tense here to speak of something that's going to happen later so much as the fact he's making an argument. And he's saying, if this is true, then this will also be true. If it's true that you have died with Christ, then it will also be true that you've been raised with Christ. Both of these things are true. One follows the other, but both are certain. The second idea is a consequence of the first. It follows like night follows day. Union with Jesus' death is followed by union with Jesus' resurrection. And that union with His resurrection does secure our future physical resurrection, the resurrection to glory. But once again, Paul is arguing here that this union with Jesus' resurrection secures our current real resurrection to grace. Third, power. Or if you have to have another C, you might could use the word catalyst, right? Uh, a person or thing that precipitates an event. Who's the person that precipitates this? Well, it's God. It's the exercise of His power. Just as Jesus' resurrection was accomplished with an exertion of his power and our future resurrection to glory will be accomplished with an exertion of his power, this current resurrection to grace, to live in newness of life, is an accomplishment of his power. Verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, and you could, I believe, read the power of the Father here, the glory that he displays in resurrecting the Lord Jesus is multifaceted, but it is a display of the exertion of his power. So we too might walk in newness of life. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. And this resurrection and this new life that we're called to live is one that is accompanied by divine power, the very power that raised Jesus from 
the dead. Paul speaks about this in a number of places. And he speaks about this power as being resurrection power. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4. Paul writing to the Corinthians, encouraging them to repent, to be ready for his third coming. He says to them, for indeed he, Christ, was crucified because of weakness, our sin. Yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him. Yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you, Corinthians. Paul says we will live with him. Paul and the believers in Corinth. Because of the power of God. The same power that he's just spoken of. That has raised Christ from the dead. Directed toward you. But I don't see anything there that points toward future resurrection. Paul's been talking to them about the power of God that is able to change them. The power of the new covenant. Perhaps... Much more clear than that. Ephesians chapter 1. If you turn there. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 18 through 20. As Paul prays for these believers in Ephesus. Ephesians 1 verse 18. He prays. That the eyes of your heart. May be enlightened. So that you will know. What is the hope of his calling. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here Paul speaks about the power of God exerted in the resurrection of Christ. He kind of in a sense stacks words together. and We don't have time to break all this apart. But he's talking about the strength of God exercised. Put to use. In bringing Christ out of the grave. Here's power exerted. And he prays in verse 19 that we would know. The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And these are in accordance with what? That power exercised in bringing Christ from the grave. That kind of power at work now toward you who believe. To what end? That you may be enlightened. That you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? In the saints. In chapter 2. Pardon me. Chapter 3. Verse 16. He again begins to pray. Begins praying in verse 14. But in verse 16. He prays that he. God. Would grant you. According to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened. With power. Through his spirit. In the inner man. I believe he's still speaking of the same power that he was praying about in chapter 1. May God strengthen you according to his riches and glory with that kind of power. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. 
and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. If you'll turn over just a few more pages to Colossians chapter 1. Again, he's praying. And beginning in verse 9 of Colossians chapter 1, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How how can you do that? Well, he also prays in verse 11 that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. And then in chapter 2, in verse 12, he writes of these Colossian believers, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. You were also raised up with him. Now. Here is the power of God exercised for the believer to live new life now. To live unto the Lord, pleasing to him. Not just the hope of Power, resurrection power then, but now. We sing about it sometimes. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim to this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. The powerful hand he holds us with is the hand that raised Jesus from the dead. That power has exercised itself in your resurrection to grace. Enabling you to walk in newness of life. Let me give you the fourth word. And that's the word change. Change. It is newness of life. He has not called you to the old life. Or even a new perspective on the old life. But to newness of life. And as he exercises his power. He does so in an effective way. That actually brings about change. He's not just throwing out power in a hopeful kind of way. That maybe you will be affected by it. And something will be different. No, he puts a new principle in us. He works powerfully in us. Have you ever seen someone? Perhaps you. Probably all of us at some time or another. You... you take up a new hobby or a task or maybe you get a job that has some hard physical labor and it's just something it's an unusual movement you're asked to do something that you're not accustomed to doing and so with a lot of effort you expend a lot of energy trying to to accomplish this and you've got someone over here next to you who's doing the same thing but because they they have learned the movement and they've learned how to use their body to accomplish the task They're not exerting nearly as much energy as you are. 
And after some time, you get it, and it's not nearly as hard as it once was. You're still working. It's still labor. It's still hard. But you have learned an economy of motion so that the energy you are exerting is actually being applied to the task at hand. The power of God is not exercised in a a general, undirected way. It's not some nebulous power. It is God directing His power, exercised with a purpose, and He raises us to newness of life. This resurrection to grace results in a new walk, in a new life. It's a new life in which you have died to sin. This does not mean that you never struggle with sin again. But it does mean that the Christian is no longer a slave to sin. In verse 11 of Romans 6, we have the first command given in the book of Romans. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the second command in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. But you're not given here a command to do the impossible. He doesn't give you a command to accomplish a task without any instructions about how to go about it. In a sense, all of Romans, all of Romans up to this, this verse is an explanation of how to go about that. But especially Romans 6, Paul's telling you how it is that you can be commanded to consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's because you have been buried with Him by baptism into death so that as He has been raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so you too might walk in newness of life. God has raised you in Christ Jesus to a newness of life. He speaks about this again in verses 6 through 10. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And Christ, who has been raised from the dead never to die again, you've been united with him. Death no longer is master over him. It's no longer master over you. He has raised you to live to God. Your being united to him results in a deliverance from sin so that you might live to God. Believer, if you are in Christ Jesus, this is now who you are. You are a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, united in his death and resurrection, in Christ's death or resurrection. 
and raised by the power of God to walk in newness of life. While you're commanded to consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus and to not let sin reign in your mortal body, this is also the reality of who you are. Sin shall not be master over you. This is, this is now the, the realm in which you live, a realm in which sin no longer has power over you. You have a new master. Perhaps to put it in different terms, it's as if Paul speaking of the new birth. Until you're born again, you cannot walk in newness of life. But once you've been born again, how can you not walk in newness of life? Jesus answered Nicodemus in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We need a birth from above, don't we? We're not people who are in need of minor repairs. We are completely and totally corrupt and we need a complete overhaul. We have to be made into a new person, a new creature. Christ was raised for our justification. But he accomplishes more than just justification. More than just a legal declaration in heaven. As wonderful as that is. His satisfaction, his sacrifice also accomplishes a new life for the believer. A new principle at work. A new heart. Thomas Manton wrote, You are never changed till the heart be changed. But who or what can change the heart? Well, God can. And He does. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Well, allow me to bring you back to Romans 6, 4 one more time. And back to the idea that there is a correlation of thought here. These ideas are connected. If you have been united to Christ in his death by virtue of that union, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. One follows the other. It's a certainty. And this newness of life is a life in which you are putting to death the deeds of the body because you've died to sin and you're living to God. If these truths are connected if one follows the other so that the absence of one makes the other an impossibility, then you have, let me say it this way, your hope of heaven, of the resurrection to glory, 
can only be a reality if you have first been raised to grace, to newness of life. If you have not been hidden with Christ, if you've not died with Him, buried with Him in His death and raised to newness of life, then you have no reason to hope that at the resurrection of glory, you will be raised in the resurrection of the just. Your hopes of heaven are somewhat tied, we could say, or they're they're certainly tied to whether or not you have now been raised to walk in newness of life. If Christ's resurrection is powerful enough to secure your resurrection then, then surely it's powerful enough to secure a newness of life now. Do you see how these ideas are connected? What is it that makes you fit for heaven? It's not anything you've done. It's grace. It's the work of Christ. It's your union with Him. Him being your representative. But if he has become your representative for that resurrection to glory, then the power that will one day raise you from the grave is the power that now raises you to walk in newness of life. If you've not been raised to walk in newness of life, there's no reason to think that you will be raised from the grave to glory. New life in Jesus is the evidence that you've been born from above, that you died with Christ, your life's been hid with Him, that you've been raised with Him, that you will one day be raised to glory. The fruit that comes from this new life, from being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, gives evidence to this new life. So let me ask you, does your life bear fruit? It may be imperfect fruit, certainly. It may be very immature fruit, but does your life bear fruit? Are you walking in newness of life? Or is it the same old life with a veneer of religion? The same old life wrestling with the same old problems with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on it. Same old loves, same old passions, same old desires with a little bit of church and religiosity. Or has there been a real and substantial change so that there's still problems, there's still hard temptations that you deal with, but there's a new principle at work. There's a new love. There's a new desire. There's a, a new person that you want to follow after and you adore him and you want to be with him. Has there been this shift, this change that is transformative? That makes you like a new person and people who know you wonder what's different? Or is it more of the same? But you got religion. If you have not been raised... To walk in newness of life. There's no reason to believe that you've been united with him in his death. One follows the other. 
If you've been united with him in his death, you have most certainly also been raised to walk in newness of life. And so if the newness of life is not there, there's no reason to think that the other is there. And if the other is not there, it doesn't matter who you know or what church you're a member of. You are still dead in your sin. The debt for you has not been paid. And if you don't come to Christ Jesus, if you don't come to Him for mercy, then you will have to pay that awful debt. Your hope of heaven, of the resurrection to glory, your hope of this resurrection to grace, to newness of life, can only be a reality if you have first been united to Jesus in His death. There is an order. You can't produce a newness of life. You don't have enough strength, enough ingenuity, enough willpower, enough whatever. You might can really clean up and impress a bunch of people, but you will not impress God. There is an order. And until your life is hid with Him, until you've died with Him, newness of life is an impossibility. And so is the resurrection of the just. Are you trying to live a new life without Christ? A Christian life without Christ? If that sounds ridiculous, it is. It's an impossibility. You will never please Him trying to live a life pleasing to Him without Christ, without coming to Him by the way that He's given to you to come. You will never impress Him. You are trying to live this new life without the essential ingredient. But you can come to Him today. You can cry to Him for mercy today. You can plead with Him for your soul now. And it doesn't have to be that way. Believer, what a treasure house of resources are yours. The heart of God is toward you. The power of God at work toward you. The wisdom of God all turned toward you. That you might walk in this new life. Sin no longer your master. A life lived to God. A new master. It's all possible. Because you have been united with Christ in his death. And you've been raised with him. To walk in newness of life. It's not by your effort. It's his. It's his power. But like the lame man. You have to get up. Jesus healed him. It's Jesus' power, but he got up and you must walk. Praise God for this wonderful grace toward us. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.